Good morning, church. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dale, and I'm part of the team that helps lead uh, New Life Community Church. This morning, we're continuing on our current preaching series uh, in the book of Mark. We're going to take a look at the death of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. But before we go there, we're going to look at a few verses that precede it, verses 7 to 13, so we can just get a little bit of context and a little lead-in to the next section. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Mark chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 7 when you're ready. So then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. And he told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So here we have Jesus sending out his disciples in pairs and giving them authority to copy the pattern of his ministry. He gives them a list of things that they are supposed to take with them, uh, not to take with them, sorry, which incidentally is the exact opposite of the list of things that I make it a point to take with me wherever I go. Number one, food. Must take food with me. Um, That's in case I get uh, hungry or hangry, as Michelle falsely calls it. (laughs) <laughs> I have to take my satchel. Those of you who see my gray satchel, that pretty much goes with me everywhere. Full of stuff I'm definitely not going to need, but can't really leave the house without it. Don't feel, don't feel safe. And money. I've got to take some money um, for no other reason than that I might actually get hungry again after I've eaten my food. Or I might see a burger van. Yeah. Now you're all thinking about burgers. Dirty burgers from a van. What we got for lunch? (laughs) Not burgers, okay. Interesting fact about me, not that you asked, but here it is anyway. I always also take a change of t-shirt with me wherever I go. Yep, equipped. And I do not currently own or can ever conceive of myself owning sandals. No disrespect to people who wear sandals. Uh, in fact, I always wear these trainers. I love these trainers, um, except when we have to go to a wedding and Michelle makes me take my pointy, shiny clown shoes <laughs> and I have to wear those, which I don't like. Anyway, there are two quick points that I want to pull out of this section. Stop thinking about pointy clown shoes on me. Firstly, the reason the disciples aren't supposed to take any of that stuff is that Jesus wants them to learn to rely solely on God for their provisions. He wants them to build their faith by exercising their faith. Don't take money, don't take a bag, don't take a change of clothes because I'm going to provide for you everything you need. I did chuckle as I read this section because 
I have to say, this bunch of guys that Jesus is sending out is not your A team, okay? As a leader, if I was looking around at guys, these are probably not the guys I'm going to send out to do my ministry for me. They do not have it all together. In fact, it wasn't too long ago, uh, actually, uh, I preached on this a couple of weeks ago, that the disciples themselves were still looking to one another and saying, who is this guy of Jesus? Who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? They do not have it all together. They don't have all their theology. They haven't completed and graduated from Bible school. But they are on an apprenticeship with Jesus. And it was time for the on-the-job training to start. Jesus wants them to build their faith by exercising their faith. I think that's a massive relief, guys. I really do. Do you ever feel like you don't have it all together? That you don't have all the answers? That you don't know all the theology? Because I do. Sometimes I do not feel equipped. And like the disciples, I feel like I don't have all the things I expect to have to go and do the things that Jesus calls me to. But that's okay. The point is, I'm supposed to trust, you're supposed to trust that Jesus is going to provide what we don't have and he will make up for any lack that we do have. Because the thing is, we are on Jesus' apprenticeship scheme too. And that means, like the disciples, we need to build our faith by exercising our faith. That means we don't need to be the A-team. We just get to be with Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? The second thing I want to point out of this section is that having been sent by Jesus, the disciples naturally copy not only the pattern, but the content of what Jesus has been doing and saying. In particular, if you look at verse 12, the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. This is exactly the same thing that Jesus has been teaching. Let's go all the way back to Mark 1, 14 to 15. Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. It's the same pattern, it's the same content. Repent and turn to God. Repent and believe God's good news. Now, to some degree, there's nothing massively uh, shocking or surprising about that. Of course, the disciples talked and behaved the same way as Jesus. Be weird if they didn't. But when you think about it, it is really an awesome testament to the hand of God at work in a bunch of ordinary people, right? There's no distortion or dilution of the message. The disciples don't soften it and they don't complicate it. And those are two of the most common sinful ways that we deal with the gospel. We either try to make the gospel more palatable to our hearers, or we try to make it more religious with rules and rituals and practices. 
But the gospel is simple. Repent and turn to God. And this is the link that Mark uses to take us into the next part of his narrative. Because as he introduces us to the death of John the Baptist, he wants us to call to mind what he's already told us about what John preached. Again, back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the river Jordan. Again, it's the same message. Repent of your sins and turn to God. First John preaches it, then Jesus preaches it, and then in turn the disciples preach it. Everyone's preaching the same message. They're all preaching from the same hymn sheet. And when we see that and when we know that, it helps us understand why there was so much confusion about who Jesus actually was. You see, if you think about it, you hear the stories about John and Jesus and the disciples, and you're hearing them maybe second, third, fourth, fifth hand. You get to make your own conclusions about who the story's about, really, and what's going on. And that leads Herod, the ruler, to make some incorrect conclusions himself. This guy was properly um, confused about the whole thing, mainly because he thought Jesus was John, a guy that he'd already arrested and then beheaded. So in a time when people weren't getting resurrected every day, somehow he still thought, John must be raised to life. That's the only explanation. Mark, 16, uh, Mark 6, 14 to 16. Let's get into the main part of our passage. Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John the man I beheaded has come back from the dead. There's a similar sort of confusion in Mark 8 when Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets. This is a common misunderstanding. Some people think John and Jesus are the same person, like Herod, and some people think Jesus is the prophet Elijah. Now, we've seen why people might get confused about Jesus and John, because they're preaching the same message, they're operating at the same time in the same areas. But what has Jesus got to do with this Old Testament prophet Elijah? I just want to clarify that. Ironically, to answer that question, we need to understand a little bit more about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. You see, the thing to understand about John is that in terms of a calling from God, John was a kind of bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's a bridge between the prophets and the Messiah. Metaphorically speaking, John had one foot in the age of prophecy and one foot in the age of God's fulfillment. 
The last book of the Old Testament is the prophetic book of Malachi. And that was written 400 years, roughly, before Jesus and John. And like most of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi's, uh, the summary of the book of Malachi is repent of your sinful ways, and guess what? Turn to God. That was his message. But the final chapter of Malachi looks forward to the coming day of judgment where God will punish the wicked and bless the righteous. And the last two verses in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament say this. Malachi 4, 5 to 6. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So for 400 years, the people of God have been waiting for the return of Elijah the prophet because they know that when he turns up, God's day of judgment and the establishment of God's rule and reign will follow closely behind. Does that make sense? Elijah comes, and the day of the Lord comes, and the new kingdom, a rule and reign of God, comes too. That's how it works. If you fast forward 400 years to the New Testament book of Luke, we find an angel telling a a gobsmacked Zechariah that he is about to become a father. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And here's the crucial bit. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Jesus states it even more clearly. He says, before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you're willing to accept what I say, Jesus says... John is Elijah, the one who the prophets said would come. From Malachi to Matthew, the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New, John the Baptist is the bridge between what God promised and what he delivered in the person and work of Jesus. In terms of significance to the people of Israel or the people of God, John is a big deal. This is something else Jesus said. He said, I tell you the truth. Of all who've ever be- who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. None who've ever, of all who have ever lived, John the Baptist is the greatest. That means Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah. None of those guys is greater than John the Baptist. What that means is that the life and ministry of John the Baptist signaled the coming, the arrival of the kingdom of God. And that makes the death of John the Baptist 
a pretty big deal. Something we need to bear in mind when we read the narrative in Mark. Otherwise, it can feel like we're reading a bit of a dry, if a bit gnarly, bit of factual history in the Bible. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read through the narrative now of John's death. And then I'm going to pull some bits out afterwards, okay? But I want you to have in your minds, John the Baptist is a big deal. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. And John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John. And knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John. But even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guest. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I'll give it to you. He even vowed, I'll give you whatever you ask, up up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. And the king deeply regretted what he'd said because, and because of the vows he had made in front of his servants, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. Yeesh! That's a bit heavy. There's a reason for that. But I'm going to break for a minute because that was dark. <laughs> now, you guys may or may not be aware that I have a list of films that I will never, ever, ever watch again. Did you know that? Okay. Right, here's a sample. Marley and Me. Don't laugh. The Breakup. The Green Mile. City of Angels. My Girl. Okay? I will never, ever watch those films ever again. And spoiler alert, the reason I will never, ever watch these films again is that they do not have a happy ending. Sorry if you haven't watched those, but the newest one is like 30 years old, so... They do not have a happy ending, and I cannot deal with it. I was absolutely devastated at the end of these movies. Bereft. 
In fact, I may have told you before that there was a movie I was watching with Shells one night, and I thought it was going to have a band ending, so I simply got up, left the room, and never came back to watch that film. <laughs> never seen the end of it. She tells me it does actually have a happy ending. I don't believe her. I'm not watching it. <laughs> yeah. That's on the list. Add that to the list. I've got to have the happy ending. I need the resolution. I need the justice. I need the balance of it all. But in reality, these movies that don't have a happy ending engage me in a way the other movies don't. That's the truth. I'm so invested as I'm looking for and longing for the happy ending that I'm broken because there isn't one. It makes me pay attention. It makes me consider the reality that things don't work out the way I'd like them to often. And they don't always work out the way I expect them to either. It's a clever way of telling a story and making a point. And it's really the answer to the question, why has Mark placed the story of John's death here in his gospel? You see, it's sandwiched between two really successful moments. The first one is Jesus sending out the disciples. They have success in their ministry. They preach the gospel, they cast out demons, and they heal the sick. Good job. The other one is Jesus' miraculous and remarkable accomplishment of feeding 5,000 people from a few loaves and some fishes. Great success, great success, not great success. In the middle, John dies. Not happy ending. It's like watching the 10 o'clock news in the middle of a Disney film. Disney film, Disney film, 10 o'clock news. But that's the point. Mark wants to arrest our attention. He wants to point out that things don't always work out the way we'd like them to. And more often than not in the kingdom of God, they don't work out the way we expect them to. The reason this section is even here is to remind us about the reality of following Jesus. Think about it. If anyone was ever going to be protected from harm, then you would think it would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a big deal. John the Baptist is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New, between what God was doing and what he has done in Jesus. No one in the history of Israel has been more important than this guy. He's the herald of the new thing that God is doing. But he's murdered. He's martyred, actually. And for what? For telling Herod and Herodias to repent of their sinful relationship and to turn to God. That's the same message he's always been preaching. He just preached it to someone who had the power and the desire to shut him up. That's a heavy message. In terms of Mark's narrative, it seems there is no happy ending here. No light at the end of the tunnel. John isn't rescued by an angel. He isn't resurrected by Jesus. His life is ended whilst in prison for the gospel by a vindictive woman and a spineless man. That's it. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat these moments. Scripture doesn't only record the success stories. 
It's a real record of real people outworking real faith in a real God. It's written by real people for real people in real situations where things go really wrong. As the disciples take the message of Jesus out and see the hand of God at work in signs and wonders, so the opposition to the gospel intensifies. It reminds us of the reality that an increase in gospel activity can lead to an increase in Satan's activity. And in this fallen, broken world that's groaning to be transformed and redeemed by Jesus, the path he calls us to follow is not about safety, it's not about comfort, it's not about a bubble-wrapped existence that prevents us from any harm. The straight and narrow path that Jesus calls us to, the cross he asks us to pick up and follow him with, is one of obedience, faithfulness, endurance, but most importantly, it's about hope. Like John, like Jesus, and like the disciples, we have a message of hope to preach to a broken world. Amen? Repent of your sin and turn to God. Especially in this day and age where the prevailing way of thinking about life leads people to sing along with Sinatra, I did it my way. We have a mission to tell people that God's ways are greater than our ways. That our ways are not always the best ways for us. People do need to repent. And that means turning around from going our way to going God's way. Now, I'm not saying in our conversations we should spout fire and brimstone at people. Repent and thou shalt be saved. Some of you like that. (laughs) I think, in all honesty, I think that kind of attitude is, is in danger of reeking of self-righteousness and of arrogance. What I'm saying is that we need to be bold to speak the truth in love. But in doing so, we need to model the grace and kindness of God. So like a neon arrow, we point straight to Jesus. We need to know and tell people that we are all equally guilty of going our own way. And therefore, we all equally need the grace, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness and love of God in our lives. It's only the grace of God that we have received that separates us from every other person in the world. Earlier, I said there seems to be no happy ending in the story of John's death. And I think on the surface of it, that is true. But what there is, is hope. You see, even in his death, John cannot help but point forward and make a path for Jesus. When you zoom out from the grisly and kind of macabre details of John's death, you can see a number of parallels between his death and the death of Jesus. 
Herod works for the Romans. And he doesn't really want to kill his prisoner, John the Baptist. He kind of likes the guy. He thinks he's innocent. The death sentence itself is influenced by pressure put on him by an outside source, his wife and his daughter. And after his death, John's body is laid in a tomb. You can probably already see those points of overlap here. Pontius Pilate works for the Romans. And he doesn't really want to kill his prisoner, Jesus. In fact, he kind of likes him. He certainly thinks he's innocent. His death sentence is influenced by the pressure put on Pilate by the crowd. And after his death, Jesus' body is laid in a tomb. Can you see that even in his death, good old John just can't even help but point the way to Jesus? The difference and the crux of the glorious good news that we've received is that unlike John, Jesus did not stay physically dead. But God raised him to life after three days. Amen? Amen. And that is a fact we will be especially celebrating next Sunday, isn't it? Yes. To go back into my film analogies, bear with me. It's a bit like one of my other favorite films. It's called The Book of Eli. If you haven't watched it, uh, I encourage you to watch it if you like action films. That film has all of my prerequisites that I need in a film. It's got a gunfight, fist fight, sword fight, and a car chase. Boom! It's a great movie. But the first time you watch that movie, you get to the end, and there's this amazing twist that makes you watch the movie right back through again from the start. So you can pick up all the references, all the nuances that you missed the first time around because you didn't know. It's kind of like that here in the book of Mark. When you know the twist, Jesus is not dead, and that through his death and resurrection, he's made a way for us to have eternal life, you read the story of John's death and indeed the whole Bible in a different way. You see that even in this story, which at first glance seems to have no happy ending and no light at the end of the tunnel, you see it actually points towards the most powerful hope and the most profound truth that the world will ever know. And that is that Jesus said, repent of your sins and turn to God. And then... He died in our place. And he took the punishment for every sinful, selfish way we've ever said, I'm doing it my way, not your way, God. And then God raised him to life, eternal life, on the third day. Smashing the work of Satan, breaking the chains of sin that hold us in our lives, and making a way for us to be reconciled to God by restoring our relationship with him all so that we could receive this free gift of God's forgiveness and an eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. Guys, if that's not a happy ending, I don't know what is. So what does all this mean for us? It means that as a church family, be relieved. We don't need to be the eighteen. We just need to be eighteen. Come on, that was a really good, that was, come on. 
It means that although we often feel like we don't have it all together, we don't have all the answers, or we don't have all the things we expect or like to have when we go on Jesus' mission, we can trust wholeheartedly in Jesus to provide what we don't have, to make up for what we lack. It means we get to do our on-the-job training with Jesus and build our faith by exercising our faith. It means that like John, like Jesus, like the disciples, we have a message to deliver to the world. Stop going your own way and turn to God. It means that we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter an increase in enemy activity, when we see an increase in God's gospel activity. You read much of, especially the New Testament, a lot of it is about don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. It means that in this life, Jesus hasn't guaranteed our physical safety or our comfort or a bubble-wrapped existence free from harm. But it means that even in the darkest moments of our lives, where there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel, we can stand firm in the most powerful hope and the most profound truth the world will ever know. It means we can rejoice in every season of life because we know that Jesus has taken away our sin, restored our relationship to God, and given us an eternal life to spend in fellowship with both God and one another. And it means that anyone who repents of their sin and turns to God is caught up into the greatest and most glorious happy ending imaginable. And that means there's a reason to rejoice. Amen? Can I have the worship team up, please? So we're going to respond now in worship. I said, to, I, was, I was praying to God. I said, God, what, what do you, how do you want me to get people to respond at the end of this message? Who, who do I need to be thinking about? Who do I need to be calling out? And God didn't give me anybody. Didn't give me any particular thing to respond for. That doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to respond to in this message some of you may have felt the Holy Spirit stirring you and there's something that you want to get prayed for I'm down the front you can grab one of the elders Kane's here, Tim's at the back there come and pray with us I don't know what that might be but it might be so let's do that we're going to respond now in worship because I think this is a message that should have stirred our hearts to give glory to our Heavenly Father and to thank Him that even in the darkest moments, we have hope in His glorious good news. Amen? So if I can get you guys to stand. The worship team's going to lead us, but I... as Sorry, dude. As part of our worship, we're going to take communion together. The communion table is at the back. I want to encourage you. As you feel led, as you are worshipping and thanking your Heavenly Father and King Jesus for what he's done, go to the communion table and take it with one another. Remember the blood that Jesus spilled. Remember his body that was broken so that we could be added into God's kingdom. We could be saved, redeemed, restored and have an eternal existence with him in heaven. Let's do that as part of our worship. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, feel free to not take that communion meal. 
But why don't you come and find one of us and chat to us a bit more about this glorious good news and this amazing happy ending that's for you as well. I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand over to these guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I am caught up into the happiest ending there is. Thank you, Lord, that all of that balance, all of that justice, all of that um, equity that I want to see outworked will be outworked in that last day. Thank you, Lord, that you are judge. Thank you that your heart is to save and to bring people into relationship with you. Thank you for the lengths that you went to to do that. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that even in our darkest moments, we can look to the hope we have in you. And we can be encouraged and we can persevere and we can endure and we can rejoice. So we come to you now, Lord, and we give you glory and praise. We worship you for everything you have done and everything you are doing. We love you, King Jesus. Amen.